Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Welcome to Julius Baer's Beyond Markets podcast, where today we have a next generation special looking at food inflation, food security, and how we can feed an ever-growing population with ever-shrinking resources. It's a rather timely topic. We've all noticed the empty shelves in the supermarket and the increased bills at the tills. In some countries, food is over 20% more expensive than it was before. But now, after a summer of wildfires, extreme heat, and Russia's recent termination of the Ukraine grain deal, many people are worrying about food inflation and whether this is the start of a less secure food future. So I'm joined today by Carsten Menke, head of Next Generation Research here at Julius Baer, to help us better understand the situation, its causes and potential solutions. Carsten, welcome to the studio. First of all, against the backdrop of the current cost of living crisis, why are we seeing such huge price jumps and missing items in the aisles? Thanks very much for having me, Emily. Yeah, the cost of living crisis, I think it's quite a complex topic with many moving parts. Uh, It includes the after effects of the pandemic, still three years on, um, various sorts of supply chain disruptions, and last but not least, of course, also the energy crisis or the war in Ukraine, however you want to put it. Last year, when food inflation peaked in most parts of the world, we have witnessed quite a perfect storm as these moving parts came together pushing up food prices between 5% in parts of Asia and more than 15% or up to 20%, as you said, in the beginning in parts of Europe. Regarding the missing items in the aisles, um, I have to say that here in Switzerland, I didn't experience it. Um, But I've heard it from friends and family in Germany where pasta was missing, flour was missing, canned food was missing. And I think this was because of hoarding, right? So the Germans typically were afraid that they could run out of food because of the war in Ukraine. Another example actually is is the UK, uh, where I think cucumbers, tomatoes, and other fresh vegetables were missing. And apparently this was due to the fact that the British supermarkets were not willing to pay the prices the farmers asked for. This is more of a special situation, which to my understanding was was not the case uh, elsewhere in Europe. Certainly for me, this was the first time that I'd ever noticed going shopping and I couldn't find yeast, for example, to make bread. How did we get to this point? Well, I think certainly food inflation has been hitting the headlines only last year, but it's not a new phenomenon. So following the agriculture markets, uh, we realized that prices started rising already a couple of years ago based on the, the closely watched United Nations Food Price Index. So in 2020, uh, farmers had disappointing harvest due to poor weather conditions. So that summer, uh, most of the world was actually hit by a heat wave. It also suffered from a lack of rain, so really very, very poor conditions for farmers that weighed on yields and reduced crop sizes. So Europe's Black Sea region, for example, reported a 30% decline in yields versus the previous season. And a similar pattern was also seen in the United States, where the size of the corn and the soybean crops fell by 5% and 20% year-on-year. At the same time, uh, demand from China picked up again. So in 2018-19, there was a swine flu which weighed on demand and recovered. So it was a little bit of an unfortunate combination uh, that year. And then in 2021, uh, warmer and drier weather conditions persisted. 
but harvests actually returned to record levels. Uh, corn and soybean demand from China stayed strong, and then it was rising fertilizer prices, which puts the upside pressure on agriculture products. And this rise in fertilizer prices reflected an energy crunch in China, where domestic coal mining was capped and natural gas was used instead. More upside pressure on fertilizer prices was then added by the European Union, which sanctioned Belarus because of its allies with Russia and it being a very important uh, exporter of potash fertilizer. It's quite the list. It <laughs> is, quite it the is list indeed, of previous yeah. shocks. But how do those shocks then compare to the ones that we've had recently? So primarily the extreme weather and yeah. the war in Ukraine. Oh, the list goes on, right? So the next shock was obviously the war in Ukraine uh, in 2022. Uh, Ukraine is known as Europe's breadbasket because of these very, very fertile soils in the Black Sea region. And yeah, initially it was a state of shock for the agriculture markets because the, the initial fear was that Ukraine would be completely cut off from international markets due to the fighting, due to a lack of farm workers uh, and also damaged or unavailable infrastructure. Well, fortunately, some of these fears proved to be overdone. Uh, so Ukraine was able to export agricultural products, even though at lower volumes and a much more fragile basis. And how does that look now that Russia recently cancelled the Ukrainian grain deal? Yeah, this has put things a little more into into limbo again, uh, because this grain deal was really instrumental as an as an export venue, because it allowed um, Ukraine to ship grains via the Black Sea, which is the main export route without running the risk of being attacked by Russian forces. So now uh, shipments from ports are down again massively. We've also seen the attacks on port infrastructure, uh, stoking renewed fears of supply shortages. That said, markets uh, seem more relaxed at the moment. So corn and wheat prices are still trending lower because globally supplies seem more than sufficient. Now, because I'm British, I want us to go back to the weather. Sure. So, so what about the weather? Let's talk about that next. Well, the weather, that's, uh, that's always a very sensible topic uh, nowadays. And uh, well, as a starting point, I think swings in the weather have always been the single most important factor influencing prices of agricultural goods. So almost each and every spike in prices during the past 30 or 40 years was driven by the weather, i.e. harvest shortfalls due to droughts. And the risk of extreme weather conditions, I think that's also not a secret, has certainly risen during the past few years. And this is a massive impact on agriculture. There is really no doubt about that. Yet, uh, we don't have any empirical evidence that these kinds of weather risks are lastingly lifting food prices. So we are not yet observing climateflation, which is the buzzword which we, which we hear about it, which would be a sustained weather-related price premium, uh, but this is certainly a concept which we are, which we are monitoring. Last but not least, there is also El Nino hitting the headlines uh, more lately, and without going into all the detail, El Nino is generally associated with warmer than average weather. It causes drier conditions in Australia, Southern Asia, Northern Latin America, and Southern Africa, threatening harvests and affecting economic activity. That said, also here, analyzing all El Nino periods of the past decades, we could not find a systemic and structural positive impact on agriculture prices. So from our point of view, we should definitely be mindful about the impact weather, but not fearful. 
I imagine many listeners will be uh, reassured by that message uh, after such a strange summer. But where does all of that leave us in the short term? I think it, it's still a very, very unpleasant situation, right? So food prices rising by double digits, energy prices still up. That's very, very unpleasant for consumers. But what we may still say is the following. So first, um, the United Nations food price index is down more than 20% from its peak and it should fall further. And this is obviously good news for the consumer, not least as this should spread more broadly into the food supply chain. Second, another important cost component of the food supply chain is obviously energy. This one has also rolled over, so that impact should also reverse and we should get some relief from lower energy prices going forward. And the third one is uh, the following. So we should not forget that the supply response in agriculture is very swift. So farmers, they have the ability to plant, to replant new crops, which is why we always say that high prices are the best cure for high prices. And in the long term then, what are the implications of all of this? How concerned should we really be uh, about food security, considering that the global population is obviously growing yeah. uh, and that available agricultural land is shrinking? Well, the topic of food security goes well beyond the topic of food inflation, I would say. And to illustrate this point, let me ask you a question, Emily. Do we need low or high food prices to feed a global population of 10 billion? Most people would assume low prices from a consumer perspective, but then when you're looking at the farmer's perspective, probably exactly. not so good, huh? Indeed. So low is the answer if you think about those who currently struggle to pay for their food and who may suffer from malnutrition as a result, right? But high is the answer if you think about those who are supposed to produce the food, the farmers, because they need the money to make the investments in order to produce sufficient supplies. So it's it's really uh, not an easy topic, not at all. Um, so financial affordability comes to first when thinking about food security, obviously, but the topic is also actually related to physical availability. And that's especially the case in developing countries. And if we start first with a financial point of view, um, we can analyze how much we are actually spending on food. And looking at the year 2021, that's the most recent data we have for the United States, uh, it's 7%. So 7% of all your expenditures go to food and it's 17% in Japan. So it's not obviously not the majority. And if we dive more deeply into the spending patterns in the US, we find that there are other items which are bigger and which have risen faster. So rent, for example, healthcare, for example. So it's not necessarily the food element which is constraining the spending power or the discretionary spending in the United States. And what about in developing countries? If we look at developing countries, emerging countries, it's, it's a very different picture. Uh, so food there claims a much higher share of the people's total expenses. So 16% in Brazil is rather the lower end, but it goes as high as 60% in Nigeria or other parts of Africa. So here people are much more vulnerable to food inflation, but also to food insecurity, partly because of income levels, but partly also because of factors that are more associated with physical availability. Do you think you might be able to give us a few examples of the the impact of this physical availability of food, especially in these different countries? 
so there are quite a few factors that, that we could talk about here, but let's focus on two, which are, I would say, the most important ones in developing countries. First, conflicts and corruption. Obviously, conflicts impede the proper functioning of economies, including the production and distribution of food, as well as the income generation of consumers. Corruption impacts food producers as their access to valuable resources, such as land and water, may require the payment of bribes, which then drains the funds and limits their ability to invest in farm machinery or critical infrastructure. Second, there's politics and trade barriers. So global trade, a uh, global trade of agriculture has grown from 15% to 25% during the past few decades. And this is important because it really bridges the gap between producers on the one side and consumers. And this is also despite significant trade barriers in many countries, so tariffs, quotas, and bans. According to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, 90% of the countries analyzed in the study have higher tariffs for agriculture products than for non-agriculture products. And besides the financial impact of these tariffs, barriers distort or disrupt the free flow of agriculture goods and thus the balancing of regional markets. India's recent rice export restrictions are a case in point. The motivation is primarily political to secure more than sufficient or at least sufficient supplies for the local population and to limit food price increases, which actually often backfires. And if we look beyond uh, developing countries, uh, so if we take a global perspective, we have, of course, food loss, food waste, we have climate change, uh, and biodiversity loss, which are also threatening food supplies. And presumably we also then have changes to agriculture. And mm -hmm. to help deal with this, we need to change the way we farm, I would assume. Um, you know, we said it earlier on today that arable land is increasingly limited. We're facing rising risks to agricultural production yeah. from, from climate change, for example, and then biodiversity loss, broader environmental problems. So where does that leave us? Well, indeed, the challenges are, are plentiful. And the good news to a certain degree is that they are primarily man-made, right? So we do have the solutions to, to rectify um, parts of these uh, things we have done. I mean, consider modern agriculture. Since 1960, global food production has risen almost fourfold. This compares to an increase of only 16% of the available arable land, showing that the productivity of the land has increased significantly. This is mirrored in the rise of yields, which in turn are in large parts attributable to improved farming methods, which includes more resilient and more productive seeds, increasing irrigation, and above all, the widespread application of fertilizers. So the consumption of fertilizers has risen almost eightfold, eightfold since 1960. And while they are integral to modern agriculture, the negative environmental impact of the accelerating application has drawn and continues to draw, obviously, much criticism. Many of the excess nutrients from these fertilizers are flushed into lakes, rivers, coastal waters, etc., with quite disastrous consequences for aquatic life. Even though regulation has become more restrictive, especially in developed countries, the negative impact of excessive application of fertilizers persists. And why is that? Why is there excessive application? One of the main reasons, and this is very important, for the excessive use is the reduction of economic risks on the side of the farmers. So this prompts them to overapply fertilizers as an insurance 
that maximizes crop yields and thus revenues. And this is countered by education programs and communication between farmers, crop advisors, scientists and other stakeholders. But such programs are primarily available in developed countries, which account for only a quarter of global fertilizer use. And transferring, uh, transferring this necessary know-how to farmers in developing countries is quite a big challenge. The good news, as I said before, is that uh, we have the solutions to, to tackle these problems. And in fact, we could produce more food with less inputs. How? <laughs> That's the question. <laughs> it sounds how, like how, magic, It right? does. How do we do that then? How do we produce more with less? So I'm not unveiling a secret when I say that digitization is one of the defining trends of our time. But it is impacting agriculture much more than we would believe. And this paves the way for what's called precision agriculture, which is the incorporation of data-driven decision-making in every step of the farming process and the reliance on increasingly sophisticated farm machinery. And the overarching goal of precision agriculture is, you can guess it, to produce more with less. So to use all inputs as efficiently as possible while maximizing the output. In most cases, Precision agriculture is more evolutionary than revolutionary. Its rise has been accompanied by technologies such as the Global Positioning System, GPS, high-quality satellite and drone imagery, as well as automation and robotics. So you can imagine that precision agriculture is heavily reliant on data, so related to the weather, the fields, the machinery, which is collected by an amount of sensors and which is processed by ever more powerful computers. You can also throw in AI here if you want. And do we have any examples of the results so we can see how it works? Yes, we have. Uh, fortunately, we have this big farming powerhouse in the US. Um, so there's a study from the US Association of Equipment Manufacturers together with some, some providers of, of technology. They have done a study over 18 years, so very long-term study, and this showed that precision agriculture is in fact living up to its promise. So corn and soybean production grew by 6% on average, while at the same time, the fertilizer and herbicide efficiency increased by 14 and 15%. Plus, the fuel and water use fell by 16% and more than 20% respectively. So indeed, producing more with less. Uh, there was a comparable study also in Canada, which focused on canola and wheat, which generally confirmed the positive impact of precision agriculture, even though to a lesser degree than in the US. I mean, you can't really argue with those results. It's no, very impressive. It's <laughs> a clear win-win situation all around. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, even though, I mean, the challenge is to convince and also enable farmers uh, elsewhere in the world to use such technologies as well. And enabling them means that they need to be able to make the necessary investments, which brings me back to the question I, I posed before, high prices or low prices. So we need a certain price level. We need a certain cash flow on the sides of the farmers to enable them to make these investments. And now where does that leave consumers? Um, and for our listeners, for example, where does it leave investors? First, from a consumer perspective, I think I've said it before, for us, today's food inflation is a consequence of a series of shocks uh, which have hit the agriculture markets over the past few years. And such shocks, fortunately, are almost always temporary. So that's the nature of a shock in, in agriculture markets, 
which is why we have a very high confidence in the moderation, if not normalization of food prices. So second, for investors, I think at first sight, this seems like a huge opportunity. Seems like an exciting opportunity, but it's not that simple. So farming is, is quite a small part of our economy only, which is why the number of companies which are offering these precision farming solutions is rather limited, at least in the listed equity space. There are a few standout companies that are worth following as they are rightly positioned to benefit from these structural changes we see in agriculture. That said, also these companies are said to face more cyclical headwinds than tailwinds for now, assuming that agriculture prices indeed trend lower. And then beyond listed equities, obviously, there is the vast private equity space encompassing a number of startups in precision agriculture. Um, as always with startup investing, the dynamics in that space are very different from what we observe in the listed equity space. But nevertheless, those are interested in precision agriculture, they should definitely have a look into that space. Thank you very much, Carsten. Unfortunately, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for joining us and thank you at home for listening. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you heard, subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or wherever you listen. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com forward slash legal forward slash podcasts for further important legal information.